One of the most fundamental truths in the Bible is that God does not need us. He does not need you. He does not need me. He does not need anyone at all. I want you to hold on to our text and turn back to Acts chapter 17 where we see this fundamental truth about God. In Acts 17, Paul is preaching uh, to the Athenians uh, who had no uh, biblical understanding of who God is. In Acts chapter 17, verse 24 and 25, I want you to see what God says about who He is. Or this is what the Apostle Paul says under the direction of the Holy Spirit. Verse 24, The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is He served by human hands as though He needed anything, since He Himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. God does not need anything outside of Himself. Rather, He gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. In our pride and self-centeredness, we want to think that God needs us in some way. And if we come to the Bible thinking this, we will twist what the Bible truly says, including what it says about God sending His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. What the Bible says about Christ's incarnation, which we celebrate at Christmas. Why did God send His Son? If we have a man-centered view of things, we might wrongly think that God sent His Son because God needed us. But God is God-centered, not man-centered. Consequently, the Bible is God-centered, not man-centered. And if we are to understand the Bible rightly, then we must likewise be God-centered. God did not send His Son because He needed us. But to magnify His grace and His mercy in the lives of His elect who need Him unto His eternal praise. On this Christmas Eve, I have selected a passage that proclaims the wonderful truths of how God sent His Son. Let's see what the Bible says in Galatians chapter 4. I'm going to read verses 4 and 5. And I would ask you if you're able to stand in honor of the Word of God. Galatians 4, verse 4. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. This is God's holy word. Please be seated. This passage is about how God sent forth His Son. The purpose of this passage is that we as believers in Christ would truly understand and appreciate what we have in Christ so that we would not turn from Christ to our former slavery that Paul talks about in the context. I want you to see where Paul's going with this. So look at verse 6. 
verse 6, And because you are sons, God sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not God's. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to be once more? That's what the Galatians were starting to do under the influence of false teachers. And Paul writes what he does in our text so they would not turn away from Christ to their former slavery. And this applies to us as believers just as much as we will see. Well, as we look at Galatians 4 verses 4 through 5, we will first of all see when God sent His Son, second, whom God sent, and third, the purpose for which God sent His Son. First of all, when God sent His Son. Observe this in verse 4. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son. Now Paul gave an analogy for this back in verses 1 and 2. The analogy involves a wealthy, upper-class Greco-Roman family. The father has died, and one of his boys is his heir. Usually it would be the firstborn son who would be the heir. The heir is the owner of the father's estate. However, the heir is no different from a slave in the household, in that the heir is under guardians and managers appointed by the father. The child is under the authority and the discipline of the guardians and managers. However, this is a temporary arrangement. For the father set a date when the child will, in a ceremony, become a man and receive his inheritance. I want you to see all this in the point in verses 1 through 5. Go back to verse 1. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. Back in chapter 3, verse 29, Paul said that if you belong to Christ, then you are an heir. Look at chapter 3, verse 29. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. And chapter 4, verse 3 says that before Christ came, God's elect were like children who were waiting to come of age and receive the promised inheritance. In fact, we were, as Paul puts it in verse 3, enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. The elementary principles of the world refer to the attempts of the natural man to make himself 
acceptable. In paganism, this included making offerings to the gods or to the spirits. And in Judaism, it was the attempt to make oneself acceptable to God by works of the law. That was twisting the purpose of the law. God did not intend for the law to be used uh, for one's justification. But in Judaism, there was the attempt to make oneself acceptable to God by works of the law. This is what Paul called in verse 3, the elementary principles of the world. Verse 4 says, But when the fullness of time had come, God acted to free His elect out of slavery and adopt them as sons. The fullness of time when God sent His Son is analogous to the date set by the Father in verse 2 for the child to be set free from his guardians and managers and enter into his inheritance as his Father's Son. We read that God sent forth His Son when the fullness of time had come. In other words, when the time came that God had determined in eternity past, when God's preparations were perfectly complete. In God's preparations for sending His Son, He had given promises that He would send a mediator. He had provided in the Old Covenant foreshadows of the mediator. He had given the law to reveal man's sin and need for the promised Savior. He had finished giving the Old Testament which was collected, distributed, and read every Sabbath in synagogues. And God had sovereignly prepared much of the world around Israel for the spread of the good news of the Savior. When God sent His Son, Rome had conquered and subdued much of the known inhabited world. There was one language spoken throughout the empire, Greek. Rome had built an extensive network of roads to facilitate travel throughout the empire. And Roman soldiers guarded these roads. This was the time of the Pax Romana, a period of relative peace and stability throughout the Roman Empire, making extensive travel possible. And there was a general awareness throughout the empire that they were in a moral abyss. In the fullness of time. When God's preparations were complete for sending His Son and then for the message of Christ to go throughout the world. When God's preparations were complete and the appointed time had come, God sent forth His Son. Let's see what our text says about whom God sent. Look at verse 4 again. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of woman, born under the law. We see here that God sent no one less than His unique, eternal, beloved Son. That God Himself came. It is very important that you understand that Jesus Christ is the eternal Son of God. That Jesus Christ is uncreated and without a being. That the Son is worthy of the highest worship. That the Son is distinct from God the Father, yet of one essence with the Father. 
that the Son is God. This in itself sets Jesus apart from all other human beings. There are teachers who call themselves evangelicals who falsely teach that we are little gods. Anyone who teaches this is a false teacher and is teaching a false gospel. Stephen Furtick is pastor of Elevation Church, which was part of the Southern Baptist Convention until recently. And Stephen Furtick in a sermon said, I am God Almighty. He also said in a sermon two years before that, when God said, I am, to Moses, you know, my name is I am, he was trying to get him to see, you are as I am. The Bible is clear that there is only one true God. Deuteronomy Deuteronomy chapter 4 verse 35 says, To you it was shown that you might know that the Lord is God. There is no other besides Him. There is only one true God. And the Bible is also clear that Jesus is God. He is the one true God. Turn over to John chapter 20. I want you to see this. As I said, this sets Jesus Christ completely apart from all other human beings. The deity of Christ. John chapter 20, verse 24. John 20, verse 24. This is after the resurrection of Jesus. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails, and place my finger into the mark of the nails, and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here, and see my hands, and put out your hand, and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. And Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Thomas professes that Jesus not only has been raised from the dead, but that Jesus is God. And that's what his resurrection declares. According to Romans chapter 1, his resurrection declares that he is the Son of God. That he is God himself who came in human flesh. And after Thomas professes that Jesus is God, then Jesus commends his faith. Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. You are to believe, likewise, that Jesus is God. We read in verse 30, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. What does it mean that Jesus is the Son of God? It's what Thomas 
professed. You are God. You, you, he said, you are my God. That Jesus is the second person of the triune God who came and became flesh to redeem us. These are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. Now coming back to Galatians chapter 4, verse 4. Understand whom God the Father sent. We read in our text, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son. The Bible calls believers sons of God, but we're not sons of God in the sense that Jesus is God's Son. Jesus is the unique Son of God. We are not little gods. We are not any kind of gods. We're human, and that's it. But Jesus is the eternal Son of God, through whom all things were made, who is of one essence with the Father, who is God and is to be worshipped as God. In the fullness of time, God sent forth His Son, born of woman, born under the law. Only this one who is described to us in verse 4 was fully qualified to fulfill the Father's purpose. The Lord Jesus Christ, who is the Son of God and was born of woman and was born under the law. Born of woman, he was born into our race, the human race, through the virgin conception. Through this miracle, he became one of us. He became truly human without ceasing to be God. There is no one like Jesus, having both a divine nature and a human nature, united in one person. Further, Jesus was born under the law. He was born under the old covenant that the Lord God made with the Jewish nation. Christ was born into the Jewish nation, subject to the law of Moses. That special, clear revelation of God's holy standard that He gave to Israel, containing commandments, containing promises of blessing for obedience, containing warnings of curses for disobedience. That mirror that God has given that exposes our true nature. As Christ lived under the law for 30 years or so, the law revealed Christ to be absolutely holy, absolutely righteous and good. Now, the law reveals something very different about us. The law reveals that we are sinners, that we are transgressors, that we are rebels against God. But the law under which Jesus lived revealed Him to be holy, righteous, and good, and revealed Christ's right to God's blessing. Now the apostles spoke of this law back in chapter 3, verses 10 through 12. And I want you to see, back in chapter 3, verse 10, what Paul said about this law. He said in verse 10, For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, that it's written in the law, 
Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now, Jesus, he did everything written in the book of the law. But there's a curse upon everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. And that includes you and me. Verse 11, now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law. For, quote, the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Another quote from the law. To redeem us from the curse of the law, Christ first had to come under the law, which is what chapter 4, verse 4 says he did. Come back to 4.4. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of woman, born under the law. Now, for what purpose did God send His Son? We see in verse 5 the purpose for which God sent His Son. Look closely at verse 5. This is, or was to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. Observe that word, redeem. That God sent His Son to redeem those who were under the law. What does that word redeem mean? It means to buy out of slavery. And what was the price that was paid by God's Son, who was born of woman, born under the law. With what price did He redeem us? The price was His own blood, willingly shed in death by crucifixion. That was the price that set us free. God sent His Son to redeem, to buy out of slavery, with His own blood, those who were under the law. Those who were under the law refers to the Jews who were under the law of Moses and it also refers to the Gentiles. The fundamental problems of all men, women, boys and girls outside of Christ is not that we are unacceptable according to the world standards. Our fundamental problem is not that we are unacceptable according to another person's standards or that we are unacceptable according to our own standards. But the fundamental problem of all men, women, boys, and girls is that we are unacceptable according to God's holy standard expressed in His law. That we are unacceptable to God. That we are transgressors of His holy standard. As slaves to the elementary principles of the world, we are slaves to sin. As Jesus put it in John chapter 8, verse 34, when he answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. We saw our fundamental problem back in Galatians 3.10. Look at it again. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse, for it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law, and do them. So God pronounced a curse in the law upon everyone who does not abide by all things written in His 
law. So apart from Christ, you and I deserve God's curse. Right? Anyone who does not do everything required by the law of God is justly under God's curse. Right? That's what you and I deserve. Because we have broken God's law. We deserve God's curse. And there's nothing that we can do to free ourselves from God's curse, from His judgment. We are slaves. Now, Christ met our greatest need when He redeemed us at the cross. Look here in chapter 3 at verse 13. At verse 13. Christ redeemed us. The same word that we have in our text. The purpose for which God sent His Son. He sent His Son to redeem those who are under the law. Notice how Christ redeemed us. Verse 13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. Another quotation from the law. So this is how Christ redeemed us. He redeemed us from the curse by suffering that curse in our place. That's the significance of the death of Jesus Christ. That's the significance of His crucifixion. It was not simply an innocent man being put to death. It was the Son of God incarnate suffering the curse of God that was due you and me. He became a curse. He suffered God's curse. Now, he deserved just the opposite. The law says that God's blessings were due him because he obeyed everything in the law. But he voluntarily experienced just the opposite of God's blessing. He suffered the curse of God as he hung there upon the cross, as he bore our sins, as he bore our guilt. He was chastised by the Father. He suffered the Father's curse. He suffered the Father's judgment for our sin. That's how He redeemed us. Chapter 1, verse 4 says, The Lord Jesus Christ gave Himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father. It was the will of the Father to crush His Son. The Lord Jesus Christ gave Himself upon the cross for our sins to deliver us. God sent His Son to redeem those who were under the law, setting us free from the law that condemned us. Go back to chapter 3, verse 22, where we see this. Chapter 3, verse 22 but the Scripture imprisoned everything under sin. That's before Christ came. This is the Old Testament Scripture. This is the law. But the Scripture imprisoned everything under sin, so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. God sent His Son to redeem us from His terrible curse 
and to grace us with His greatest blessings. I want you to observe the second half of this in our text, in chapter 4, verse 5. The purpose for which God sent His Son was not only to redeem us, it goes beyond that. Verse 5 says, To redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. Those three English words, adoption as sons, translate one Greek word. And that Greek word means sonship. To redeem those who are under the law so that we might receive sonship. The Greek term was used to describe two different practices in the Roman world. One practice that this term sonship or adoption as sons uh, was used to refer to was when a wealthy man would adopt a young man as his son. This was done in order to make him the man's heir. The most famous example of this in history is Julius Caesar um, adopting his great nephew Octavius, who later succeeded him as the emperor Caesar Augustus. So that's the first practice in the Roman world referred to by this term sonship or adoption of sons, a wealthy man adopting a young man as his son to make him his heir. The second practice that this term referred to was a father taking his boy who has been under guardians and managers and conferring on him the full rights and privileges of an adult son. Now, both practices are in mind here. Before God sent forth His Son, verse 3 says, We were children. We had not come of age. We were children. The promise of God's blessing had been given to us, but we did not yet possess the promised inheritance. Adoption as sons, in verse 5, puts us in possession of the promised inheritance. At the same time, we see in our text that before God sent forth His Son, verse 3 also says we were enslaved. We were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world, enslaved to sin, enslaved to the law with its curse. And adoption as sons, in verse 5, frees us and places us into a greatly privileged relationship with God where He is now our Heavenly Father. As the adopted sons of God, we have inherited the greatest blessings of God. Look in chapter 4 at what verses 6 and 7 say about this. Chapter 4, verse 6, And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. As an adopted son, we are an heir. What have we inherited from God? We'll go back to chapter 3, verses 8 and 9. Chapter 3, verse 8. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, and you shall all the nations be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of 
faith. As the adopted sons of God, we have inherited this blessing that God foretold to Abraham, or promised in this promise that He gave to Abraham. Now this blessing that God spoke of in the book of Genesis as He spoke with Abraham, this blessing includes being justified by faith. Notice that in verse 8, and the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith. Being justified by faith is part of this blessing. That is our inheritance. That now as the adopted sons of God, we possess. Being justified by faith. This blessing is a right relationship with God that is received by grace. And with a right relationship with God comes direct access to God in prayer and assurance of answered prayer if our prayer is in accordance with the will of our Heavenly Father. This is the wonderful purpose for which God sent His Son to redeem those who are under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. A purpose that glorifies God's grace. Now why does the Apostle speak of redemption and adoption here in chapter 4, verse 5? Let's see why he speaks of this. Look again at verse 8 in chapter 4. Chapter 4, verse 8. Formerly when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God... How can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world, whose slaves you want to be once more? You observe days and months and seasons and years. I am afraid that I may have labored over you in vain. False teachers were telling the believers in Galatia that in order to be Christians, it was not enough to believe in Jesus Christ. But they as Gentiles had to put themselves under the law of Moses, the old covenant which God made with the Jews. They had to observe the Sabbath day and the Jewish festivals. Now go down to chapter 4, verse 21. Chapter 4, verse 21. Tell me you who desire to be under the law. They had that desire under the influence of the false teachers. These Gentile believers had the desire to be under the law of Moses, under the Jewish law. Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? And then chapter 5, verse 1. Chapter 5, verse 1. For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision... Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ. You who would be justified by the law, you have fallen away from grace. The false teachers said that Gentiles had to believe in Jesus Christ and go through the ceremony of becoming a Jew in order to be a Christian. This is the context of our text that we are studying today. 
Paul teaches what he does in our text about God sending His Son to redeem those under the law that they might receive adoption as sons. Paul teaches what he does here so that the Galatian believers will see the foolishness of the false teaching. For Gentiles to accept circumcision and to begin observing Jewish days, months, seasons, and years amounts to going back to the very thing from which believers have been freed. It is to revert from the status and full privileges of sonship back to childhood under guardians and managers. It is to give up the inheritance that we have received. It is to revert from sonship to slavery. It is to turn from the one whom God sent to redeem us and give us adoption as sons. And this is what we who profess faith in Christ would do if we now sought to be justified by the law. Notice that terminology in verse 4. You are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. Speaking to Gentiles who had believed the gospel, they had believed in Christ. He gave every appearance that they received the Holy Spirit. But now, under the influence of the false teaching, now they want to be justified by the law. The person who does not work for a right standing with God, but instead believes the gospel of Christ, believes in the Lord Jesus Christ, has been accepted by God, and stands in right relationship with God for one and only one reason. That God sent forth His Son, who was born of woman and born under the law. That He abided by all things written in the book of the law and did them. And then He redeemed us, suffering the curse of the law in our place, and then rising from the dead, so that we would receive adoption as sons through faith in His name. And when we believed, we received this adoption as sons. This is the one and only one reason why the person who does not work for a right standing with God, but instead believes the gospel of Christ, believes in the Lord Jesus, has been accepted by God and stands in right relationship with God. May we not begin to look to our works to give us a right standing with God. That's the Galatian heresy. And Paul says, I'm troubled about you. Because it sure appeared that you understood and believed the gospel. But now you're going back to putting confidence in the works of the law. I'm puzzled about you. I'm concerned that I've labored over you in vain. It looks to me like Christ needs to be formed in you all over again. Because to turn away from the Christ who redeemed us, from the Christ who, who brought about the adoption of sons, to turn back then to the works of the law for right standing with God, it's going back to the very thing that Christ was sent to free us from. It's utter foolishness. And Paul says, in turning like this, you're, you're turning away from grace. Because grace is only found in one place. It's only found in the gospel. 
is only found in, in Christ. And to turn back to the works of the law is to turn from grace. It's to turn from the only way of salvation. The only way of being justified before God. What we have seen in Galatians 4, 4-5 is the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. That God sent forth His Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, that they might receive adoption as sons. This is the purpose for which God sent His Son. Let me ask you, what are you looking to for acceptance with God? What are you looking to for a right relationship with God? Are you looking to your works? Are you looking to the law? Or are you looking to Christ and Him alone? The Apostle Paul is teaching the great doctrine of justification by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. I want you to go back in Galatians to chapter 2, verses 15 through 16. Galatians 2, 15 and 16. Here in these verses, Paul is quoting what he had said to the Apostle Peter. Chapter 2, verse 15. Paul says to Peter, We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners, yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus, in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. This morning, my friend, if you are not looking to Christ alone for acceptance with God and a right relationship with Him, then I implore you to turn from your sin and believe the gospel of Christ. Believe the gospel of grace. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Trust in Him as your Lord. Trust in Him as your Savior. And you will be saved. You will be declared righteous by God in His grace. If you already are a believer, then let your faith in Christ be strengthened this morning. But what we have seen about God sending His Son to redeem those under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. Our faith needs to be strengthened day by day by feeding on the gospel of grace. How very joyous it is to have our minds as believers renewed again with these glorious truths. That God the Father, God Almighty, sent His own beloved Son. That, that, that the Son humbled Himself in being born of woman. He humbled Himself in being born under the law. And He fulfilled the law perfectly on our behalf. The law declared Him to be righteous. And the righteous one, He laid down His life for us at the cross. Becoming a curse for us. That through His death, we would live. That through His death, we would be saved. And there would be no hope if He only died upon the cross. But He didn't only die upon the cross. He was raised on the third day in victory. Declaring that the Father had accepted that sacrifice. Declaring Jesus to be the Son of God. Declaring Jesus to be the promised Christ. Jesus appeared alive 
in his resurrected body to over 500 of his disciples over the course of 40 days. And he ascended before the eyes of his apostles to the right hand of the Father, where he is, is ruling and reigning today. He is King of kings. He is Lord of lords. And He will return in power and great glory. And one day every knee will bow before Him. One day every tongue will confess He is Lord. The redeemed with great joy. And the unredeemed, the wicked, on their way to eternal judgment. But God will be glorified. God is at the center of all things. God is God-centered, not man-centered. So one day every knee will bow before Jesus. Every tongue will confess that He's Lord to the glory of the Father. Not to their salvation. As I said, some will, will do so on their way to judgment. But they will bow and they will confess unto the glory of the Father. As believers in Christ, we of all people have most reason to rejoice. Regardless of our temporal circumstances. What we have seen today of the gospel gives us reason for joy every morning when we wake up. All throughout the day. At night when we put our head down to sleep. Christian joy is not a wishy-washy happiness based on physical health. Christian joy is not a wishy-washy happiness based on financial prosperity. Christian joy is not a wishy-washy happiness based on marital well-being. Christian joy is not a wishy-washy happiness based on earthly success. So that if things go well for me, I'm happy. If they don't, I don't. Christian joy is not based in circumstances. Christian joy is based in Christ. Christian joy is based in the gospel of Christ. In the good news that God sent His Son for us. When we were dead in trespasses and sins. When we were in, uh, slaves underneath the condemnation, the righteous condemnation of God. With no way to free ourselves. That God sent His Son in His grace, in His mercy, to redeem us. To pay that highest of prices. To set us free. And then to give us the adoption as sons. We've been adopted by the King of kings and Lord of lords. We've been made heirs of the greatest blessing. A relationship with Him based on grace. What more could we ask for? And so we have this Christmas season a joy that ought to be indestructible. So that even if we're in the hospital, even if we lose our job, even if our marriage goes terrible, even if our, our children spit in our face, well, all these things are painful and hard. In the midst of it all, we can have a rock-solid joy. Because no one can take away from us what we have in Christ. This is God's sovereign grace 
in salvation. Salvation is of God's grace from beginning to end. Our confidence as we, as we think about where we will be in the future, where we will stand with God, our confidence is not based on works of the law. Our confidence is not based on our obedience, our performance. Our confidence is based in Christ, in the grace of God. The grace by which God sent His Son for us. The grace by which Jesus redeemed us. The grace by which we've been adopted as sons. We stand in the grace of God. And so we can rejoice no matter what our earthly circumstances. And we have a wonderful Savior to proclaim to our co-workers. A wonderful Savior to proclaim to our friends, our neighbors, the person that, that we, we do business with this, this coming week, and to the world. So let us rejoice in the one whom God sent. Let us rejoice in the work of this one. And let us rejoice in the blessing that we have inherited in Christ Jesus our Lord. A right standing with God. A right relationship with God that is all grounded in God's grace. His indestructible grace. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you sent your Son for us while we were still sinners. We, we will never tear, tire of reading and hearing the gospel of Christ. Every time we hear the gospel of Christ, we rejoice. We give you thanks. Oh Lord, may our minds this Christmas season be focused not on circumstances, not on earthly gifts, but on the greatest gift, the gift of your Son. May that be what we rejoice in. And Lord, we pray that you would enable us to make Christ known to others. That others, too, would hear the gospel and by your grace believe that their faith would be counted as righteousness in your grace. That they would be justified by your grace. If there are any here this morning who are putting their reliance on their works, any here this morning who are putting their reliance on works of the law for right standing with you, I pray, Father, that you would open their eyes to see their spiritual bankruptcy, to see that the law, rather than justifying them, condemns them. And they need this salvation that we have seen in your word this morning. They need the Savior that we have seen in your word. We can't hold on to our works for right standing with you and hold on to Christ as our Savior at the same time. He will not share His glory with another. May our confidence, may our faith 
be squarely in Christ and in Him alone. Unto your eternal glory, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.